So our current sermon series is named after a book, um, How Not to Read the Bible. Uh, my favorite part is the little tagline here, making sense of the anti-women, anti-science, pro-violence, pro-slavery, and other crazy-sounding parts of Scripture. If you haven't read this book, I really, really encourage you to get a copy of it. My favorite part of this book is what we're calling the rules of engagement. And that's all about when you read the Bible, you want to bear these things in mind. The Bible's a library, not a book. It was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. We never read just a Bible verse, and we remember that this whole thing is one big story, and that story is all about Jesus. And so anytime we read the Bible, but certainly when we run into parts of the Bible that are confusing, or parts of the Bible that make it hard to understand, or parts of the Bible that make it hard to believe, we want to always refer back to these rules. So, for example, um, there are a lot of Bible passages that seem to be in conflict with science. And, you know, atheists have a field day, uh, mocking Christianity and mocking the fact we believe in a seven-day creation, we believe in a 6,000-year-old earth, we believe in a creator God. And I got to tell you, they're really good at making fun of us. Um, and I just, I just tip my hat, man. I've seen some really funny memes out there that are like making fun of Christians that have chosen to believe in the Bible instead of science. And they poke their fun by asking a really clever question, where are the dinosaurs in the Bible? Right? When did, when did dinosaurs happen? If the Bible story starts in the beginning and it goes to the end, when did the dinosaurs happen? And when did the dinosaurs leave and what happens? And I have the solution to that. Uh, Matt, can you show that first graphic? This is what happened. So just, I mean, you're dismissed. I mean, that's it, I'm right there. Uh, I mean, were there dinosaurs on the ark? I mean, I don't know, and if, if there were, then when did they go away? Because it was only a couple thousand years after that until Jesus came. Were dinosaurs still here when Jesus came? And I've got the answer to that in our next graphic. Take a look. <laughs> this is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Turned out it wasn't a donkey after all. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, this is, a, this, is a, this is a reasonable question, right? The Bible starts in the beginning and it ends at the end. Did it forget about dinosaurs? And really a bigger question is, based on that kind of stuff, can we trust the Bible? And do we have to choose between the science and the Bible? And there's a lot of folks that have lost their faith in God because they see inconsistencies between the Bible and science or because they see, see stuff that doesn't make sense uh, in, the, in the biblical creation story. Like, you know, the, the world was lit up, right? There was light and plants were growing before the sun was created in the biblical story. And we had mornings and evenings before the sun was created in the biblical story. And, you know, the earth was suspended and hanging in place without the gravitational pull of the sun before the sun was created in the story. So it's kind of confusing. And I think that confusion has caused some Christians to lose their faith. So today, let's talk about dinosaurs. Let's talk about creation and the Bible. I'm pretty sure we can nail this in 35 minutes. Um, so let's start with this. Um, 
How many of you, first of all, um, believe in God? Okay, that's, that's, that's good. So we already believe in an entity who is above creation and who is above nature. And as Christians, we specifically believe in a man walking on water. We specifically believe in a man that spontaneously healed people. We specifically be, believe in a man that resurrected from the dead. And we don't think those are metaphors. And we don't think those are fairy tales. We think those are actual, factual, historical events that really happened. Yeah? Yes. And they are scientifically, naturally impossible. Yeah? Yeah. So we can kind of start with that, right? Jesus said nothing is impossible with God. And so as Jesus followers, we accept that some things that we may not understand or that don't make sense are just God being God, right? So of course, God could have lit up the world on day one and not created the sun until day four. He's God and he kind of does what he wants. But is that always the only explanation? Do we always have to choose between science and the Bible? And here's a question that came up to me this week. Is it even okay for us to be asking these questions? Because there are Christians that believe that it is some kind of sin to even, to even consider science and how it compares with the Bible. So I wanna, I wanna clear that up like first. Some people think that it's a sin to try to understand how this stuff, science and the Bible might work together and even consider science. But I'm gonna show you a verse that I think is important. It's Proverbs 25, two. And it says, it's God's privilege, or maybe your version says it's God's honor, or it's God's glory. It's God's privilege to conceal things. And it's the king's privilege to discover them. So here's what that is saying. It, it is to the, it's the privilege of man. It's the glory and honor of man to try to understand things. That doesn't mean God's always gonna allow it. It's God's privilege to hide stuff and reveal what he wants to reveal. And it's our privilege to try to dig it out and understand it. But that doesn't mean we're always going to. Isaiah 55, 8, God says, you know, my thoughts are, are nothing like your thoughts. And, and my ways are way beyond anything that you can imagine. But it's okay for us to try to discover things and to try to understand things. Jesus is not afraid that we're gonna find out the truth because Jesus is the truth and it's our privilege and it's our glory to try to figure things out. So science is not the enemy and it's not automatically incompatible with the Bible. Somebody say amen. amen. Okay, the most common place that people get sideways on this whole discussion is in the very beginning, right? The origin of life, uh, the creation of the world and all that. And I will tell you that there are people, really smart, spirit-filled Bible scholars that read Genesis one and two to mean that God literally created the earth and everything in it in six consecutive days, 144 hours. And then they take the genealogies of the Bible, so we know Adam begat Seth, and Seth begat Enosh, and Enosh begat Kenan, and then a whole bunch of other guys after that, right? And, and the Bible even tells us like how old people were and all that stuff. So there are people that have pieced this all together and took out their adding machines and come up with this. When Jesus got to Bethlehem, the world was about 4,000 years old. And we know that that happened about 2,000 years ago, so boom, the world must be 6,000 years old. 
So there are really smart, spirit-filled Bible scholars who are sure that the world is 6,000 years old. And there are, there are other spirit-filled, really smart Bible scholars who think it's way older than that, like hundreds of million years older than that. And they think that, God, that science proves it. So both sides are godly, spirit-filled, they know the Bible, they're smart people, and they've come to different conclusions. And today, we are not going to debate that. And today, we're not gonna even try to figure that out because that's not the purpose of this series. That's not the intent of this message. We're not teaching this series so that we can figure out how old the earth is. Um, we're doing this series because we don't want people to unnecessarily come to a point where they think they have to make a choice between abandoning their faith in God or abandoning science and the search for truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth. And if we believe that, then we believe that digging and searching for what is true is a good thing, right? It's our privilege. It's our honor. It's our glory. So, Here's one way I think we get a little like crossways with this. At CBCB, we believe that the Bible is infallible. Do you believe that? The Bible is infallible. What that means is the Bible cannot fail. And here's a verse, Isaiah 55, 11. God says he sends his word out, right? He give, he's given us his word. It always produces fruit. It will, this is God talking, it will accomplish what he intends for it to do. It will not fail to do what God intends for it to do. The Bible is infallible, it cannot fail. But here's where I think we get mixed up. Sometimes we read parts of the Bible and we develop certain understandings of the Bible in a certain way and then we put our faith in the infallibility of our understanding of scripture instead of putting our faith in the actual infallibility of scripture. And that is like super dangerous. Because then if those understandings turn out not to be true, we could lose our faith. So I'll give you a great example of that. I bet all of you that remember Gumby and Pokey have been around long enough to know, you've seen the same thing, right? Here's somebody and they write a book, right? Some famous preacher, he's on TV and everything, so you know he must be legit. And he says, you know what? I've read the book of Daniel, I've read the book of Revelation, and I have ascertained that the world will end, Jesus will come back in 2014 right? Who's not seen that, right? Of course we've seen that happen over and over and over and over, and people put their faith in that. Guess what doesn't happen? 100% of those predictions have been wrong so far, right? And so then people say, well, I believe in the Bible, and he told me the Bible says Jesus is coming back in 2014. Jesus doesn't come back in 2014, so they say, well, that can only mean one thing. The Bible is garbage. The Bible is wrong, and that's, the Bible is not wrong. The Bible is not garbage. The Bible is infallible, but that doesn't mean that our understanding of the Bible is infallible. Maybe we just read it wrong. If you're with me, keep going like this. This keeps me moving, okay? So here's a great example of that. It's a story of Galileo. So in 1600s, um, science and the church agreed that the earth was stationary and that the sun revolved around us. And as a scientist, it was pretty obvious. You look out, it's over there. And there it goes, and there it goes, 
and it sits over there. So any good scientist could say, well, it's pretty clear what's happening here, right? I'm observing nature, I'm making a scientific conclusion. The sun revolves around the earth. And then the Bible seems to kind of support that. So here's a couple of verses. Ecclesiastes 1.5 says, the sun rises and it sets and it hurries back to where it rises. Here's uh, Psalm 93.1. It says, the world is established, it's firm and it's secure. Here's 1 Chronicles 16.30. It says the world cannot be moved. So the church read that to say the earth is stationary and the sun's revolving around us. Science agreed, everybody agreed. And when Galileo published this paper in 1632 and he said, no, it turns out the earth is revolving around the sun, they put him on trial for heresy because they said that his science contradicted the Bible. And of course, now we know his science was right. But the Bible wasn't wrong. They were just misreading it. These statements in the Bible were never intended to be scientifically accurate. These, these passages, they're never intended to be read literally. These were meant to convey a, a point in common language and in the common understanding of that day. And the psalm is actually a poem. It's a poem. It's not a science paper. It's a poem. That passage in 1 Chronicles, right after that, it says that the earth should rejoice and be happy. Well, obviously that's not literal, right? Obviously that's not a scientific statement that the earth should be happy and rejoice. Obviously, it's not that the Bible was wrong. It's that we were reading it wrong. When we took these things physically and literally and scientifically that were never meant to be read like that, so we wanna be sure that our faith is in God and that our faith is in the Bible and not in our interpretation of it. So one place that there's a lot of confusion and a lot of contention and frankly a lot of fighting about the creation story is in the actual age of the earth. When did this thing happen? And how long did it take? I mean, is it six days or what? So some people say that the world is billions of years old and science proves it, and the Bible is garbage, and there is no God. And all life came to be naturally. And it all started with one cell of like nitrogen, right? And then that cell became two cells. And then those cells became four cells, dot, dot, dot. And now we have this. And now we have thousands of species of animals. And a lot, of people, a lot of people really think that. Um, there's a problem with that thinking, uh, like where did that cell come from? And what caused that cell to multiply and split and change and develop it? So uh, other people would say that the world is literally 6,000 years old. It was created in six consecutive days. Uh, those days are exactly 24 hours, and there's a problem with that, and that is that most scientists um, believe that the world appears to be much older than that. And they say, I'm standing here holding a rock. I'm holding a bone that's millions of years old. So I guess the question that we need to wrestle with a little bit is, is it possible that science could be right? And I'm not saying it always is. Is it possible that science could be right and the Bible could be true? Can I hold a Bible in one hand and a 50 million year old bone in the other hand? Is it possible that just like Galileo's buddies, we were reading the Bible wrong. And is there, 
another way to look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And actually, there are several different ways to look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and none of them are provable. Did you hear me say that? None, I can't prove any of them, right? And some of them are kind of silly, um, but they're also kind of fun to kick around. So um, if you'll permit me, let me throw you a couple of theories out there. Okay, here's a couple of ways that we could have a 50 million year old bone, and we could have a Bible, okay? Um, maybe it's six days that are non-consecutive. And when I say non-consecutive, I mean like really non-consecutive. So God said, let there be light, and the evening and the morning were the first day, and then 50 million years happened, right? And then God said, now let there be space between the waters, and then 10 million years happened, and then day three. So that's, that's, that's possible, the non-consecutive day theory. Uh, there's the gap theory. A lot of you have heard this one. It's kind of the same thing. It says, um, verse one says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and then there was a gap. Hundreds of millions of years. And during that gap came, what, dinosaurs and um, uh, cavemen and fire. And then, after that gap, God said, let there be light. And the creation continued. That's the gap theory. Um, here's one I like. Um, I call this theory, God gave Moses a six-day history lesson. Okay, so who wrote Genesis? Moses, not a trick question, Moses, right? Was Moses there at the creation? No, so this is not like he's looking at, you know, security camera footage, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, look at that. Then came light, huh, son of a gun. That, that's not what happened. Instead, God, like, told Moses what happened, right? And he, maybe he explained it to him in great, gory details. And so he sits Moses down, and he goes, look, I'm going to need you to write this out for people. You're going to give the condensed version, but let me just tell you what happened, okay? On, uh, in the beginning, I created the heavens and the earth. Now, first, let me tell you what the beginning means. Here's, and you've got to understand what beginning means. Let me tell you what heaven and earth means. And maybe this took forever, and his, Moses' his head is exploding, and he's scribbling these notes and scribbling these notes. He's scribbling these notes, and finally he goes, you know, that's it. I'm done. That's, I, I got, I'm, I'm out. That's all I can handle. And the evening and the morning were the first day. So maybe it wasn't six days of creation. Maybe it was a six-day review of creation. What do you think of that one? Probably not. I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Here, here's a theory. Maybe we're misunderstanding the word day. So the word that we, from Hebrew, translated to, to the word day is the word yom, Y-O-M. Let me hear you say yom. And yom means a 24-hour day, sometimes. And sometimes it means an indefinite period of time. So, in fact, in, in Genesis, just in Genesis, just Moses, he uses it to mean that, to mean 24 hours. And then in Genesis 1-5, he uses the same word, yom, to mean 12 hours. And then in Genesis 2-2, he uses the same word, yom, to mean a week. And then in Genesis 4-3, he uses the same word, yom, to mean a growing season. And then in Genesis 44, 32, he uses the same word, yom, to mean a lifetime. And in that same verse, he uses it to mean forever. So can you see how, if we got that word translated wrong, that could like make a really, that could be a pretty big difference. If he meant day one, or he meant era one. What do you think, like that one? 
Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, uh, we don't know, right? right? Here's a fun one. I like this. This is, a, this is probably the most far-fetched one, and it's really my favorite because it's fun. Okay, let me ask you this. Um, how old did Adam appear when he was created? Was he a baby? Did he have hair under his arms? How old was he? Was he shaven? Was he 30? What do you think? Come on, I need some answers. How old? 20? Okay, 20 is good. 30? Okay, so then he's got some wisdom or something. I think he was at his prime, which is, we all know, 61. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So here, understand the question that we're asking now, right? When Adam was literally one second old, he appeared to be 30, right? He had the characteristics of someone that was 30 years old, even though he was really only one second old. Is it possible that when the earth was one second old, it had the appearance of being 200 million years old? What do you think? Probably not, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Here's another one, uh, this is the framework theory, and this is that the days of creation are not chronological days describing what happened when. Instead, it's a literary design intended to show that God is a creator of everything. So in the framework theory, there's a problem, two problems, the, the creation was formless and empty, and so days one through three, God divided chaos into order, so it wasn't formless anymore, and days four through six, he filled it up with life. So it wasn't empty anymore. So that's enough, that's six. Which is it? I mean, is it, is, is it billions of years? Is it 6,000 years? Like the gap theory? You like that YOM deal? Um, framework theory? Uh, we can vote, we can, we can fight. It's always good to fight. We can cuss at each other on Facebook. I mean, there's a lot of ways to settle this. Um, you wanna know what I think? I don't know. I don't think the Bible tells us. I don't think the Bible intends to tell us. Remember that verse? That verse says God said his word will accomplish what he set it out to do. And maybe he didn't set it out to answer my questions about the fossil record. And that's, that's questions I have. And maybe that's questions we all have about creation and the origin of life and all that. And having a question is our privilege, we covered that, but that doesn't mean that that's what God is answering. And that's his privilege. So we might wanna remember um, rule number two, the Bible is written for us, but it wasn't written to us to answer all of our questions. Who was Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 written to? It was written to the, the people of Israel, right? When God called them out of slavery, they've been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. He's calling them into the promised land. They're going through the desert. It's 3,000 years ago, and they, they've got questions. They got questions about God and who he is and can he be trusted and is he for us and is he gonna take care of us and how should we live to please him? And you know a question they probably had after 400 years in Egypt? What about all these Egyptian gods? We've been hearing about them for 400 years, right? 
They got the sun god and the moon god and gods that look like cattle and gods that look like frogs. They thought the Nile River was a god, so should we still worship them? So the Israelites had lots of questions. But do you know what they did not have questions about? Fossil records, carbon dating, dinosaur bones, the age of the earth. So Genesis 1 and 2 were written to people asking questions, not about how the world was created or when the world was created, but about who created it and why. And God answered their questions about the nature of God and the nature of man and the nature of the world and what those things could all be together. And he answered them through this story of creation not a scientifically accurate dissertation about how he created everything, but a revelation of the God who created everything and the beginning of his plan to restore and, and redeem what was broken. And they were, they were coming out of this world where they worship gods like frogs and, and the sun and the moon and, and kings. And God wanted to be clear in the story that he gave them about creation, that all of those things, all of those, frogs, cattle, the river, Pharaoh, everything in the world, everything in nature was created by God and was subordinate to God. God is a creator, and he wanted a relationship with the creation that he had made in his image. And that's what he was revealing to them in Genesis 1 and 2. And that's what Genesis 1 and 2 reveals to us even though we might want it to answer our questions about you know, dinosaur bones and atmospheric helium content and how old the earth is and what does the word yom mean. Um, there's an interesting line of thought called uh, concordism. You ever heard of that? Here's, here's a quote about that. Um, it says, the Bible and science are both reliable sources of knowledge about the origin of the earth and the universe. God has written two books for our instruction, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And since God is the author of both books, they must agree when properly interpreted. That's a pretty cool statement right there, right? So I got a little, a little table to show you kind of what this, this is trying to, I think, express, and that is that God has given us these two books, right? He's given us scripture and he's given us nature. And then as humans, we interpret both of those two things. And when we interpret scripture, we get theology. And that's the next thing. Theology, um, the main goal of theology is to understand spiritual realities. So when man interprets scripture, we get theology so that we can understand spiritual reality. And when man interprets nature, we get science. Uh, and the main goal of science is to understand physical reality. So a geologist looks at a bone or a rock or a fossil and asks about physical realities. What happened? When did it happen? How did it happen? How long did it happen? That's a geologist. A theologist looks at scripture and asks spiritual questions like, who created all this? Why can we know him, right? And they can both describe the realities that they dig up completely differently and both be telling the truth. Does that make sense? Let me give you a couple of little illustrations of this, okay? Let's say you want to know what love is. Sing it with me. I want to know what love is. 
want you to show me. I'm just stalling because I don't want to. Uh, okay, you want to know what love is, okay? There are several really different, really true things you can say about what love is, depending on what questions you're asking and depending on what source you're going to. Okay, so if you want to know what love is, you could go to these cartoons from the 70s. I think we've got a picture of these. Remember those? Come on, Gumby and Pokey people. Remember these? Love is two hearts traveling the same path. Love is a song, and they're naked. Look at that. A song in your heart. Love is giving without giving in. Love is the little things he does for you. Isn't that sweet? Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Kind of corny. That's true. Um, Robert Burns wrote, love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Love is like a melody that's sweetly played in tune. Is that true? Yeah. It's not very scientific, right? So see the different sources that we're going to for answers? They're both giving true answers. Um, what if you went to a doctor and said, what is love? They would probably say, it's a release of neurotransmitters and hormones like you know, testosterone and estrogen and dopamine and oxytocin. Um, is that true? Is that what love is? Yeah, it's true. It's not very romantic, right? It doesn't make a great poem. <laughs> My love is like a red, red release of neuromodulators <laughs> flowing through my bod, right? So, all, listen, all of them are true. All of them are right. They're just answering different questions. What does love feel like? What is the experience of love? Is a different thing than what physical processes cause those feelings. You with me? Okay, I can tell, I, I got a few of these. Not quite enough, give you another idea, okay? How about death? What is death? So a pastor might say, you wanna know what death is? Our souls are eternal. And the, body says, the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. So death is a transition from one stage of life to another. Is that true? Spiritually, that's true, right? A doctor would say that death is the cessation of all the critical life functions of the body. Is that true? Physically, yeah. One is describing spiritual aspects of death, and one of them is describing physical. Both are true. They're just completely different. And science and theology ask different questions, and they, they have different goals, and they come up with different answers, and I'm suggesting that those answers aren't always mutually exclusive. So it's good that we wanna find truth and the answer to our questions, and it is our privilege, it is our honor, it is our glory to ask those questions. But God chooses to reveal what he reveals. And he reveals it the way that he chooses to reveal it. And some physical things he reveals through nature and science. And some spiritual things, most spiritual things, he reveals through scripture. And we may be wrong in our interpretation of the Bible, um, like Galileo's friends were. And we may be wrong in our interpretation of nature and science, like Galileo's friends were. 
but God wrote both books, and both are true. And when we ask Genesis 1 and 2 to tell us about science and timelines and how all the how of creation, it's kind of like asking a geology book to tell you who God is. It's kind of like asking a poem about the release of neurotransmitters. It's kind of like asking an autopsy report to tell you about going to heaven. We're, we're kind of superimposing my questions, right? We're kind of superimposing what we think is important about creation over what God has chosen to present to us. And remember that verse, Isaiah 55, 11. It's, he says, I will send out my word, it will produce fruit, and it will accomplish all I want it to. And it'll prosper everywhere. So his creation story is more about the who of creation and maybe the why of creation. And maybe it's not intended to tell us the how or the when. I think we have to remember it was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And we need to remember rule number three. We can't just get too focused on one verse or one passage. It's all part of this amazing story of the Bible. And the, the creation narrative is just the beginning of that story. It's just setting the stage. Later, the plot will thicken. And man will make a terrible choice. And the world and humanity will spiral into death and decay. And God will redeem the world and redeem his people. It's a really cool story. And don't forget rule number four, that story is about Jesus. And that story ends with him coming back to restore the earth and to redeem mankind and to fix creation that we broke. And he was also there at the beginning of the story. So John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning the word already existed. Who's the word? Jesus. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing that was created was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. So Jesus was there at the beginning of the story, and then when mankind and God's world like spiraled into death and horribleness, then the Father sent Jesus to redeem it and to restore it and to give it light. Here's the verse for that. John 3, 16 says, this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that anyone that believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. So we got questions, right? We have questions about the how and the when of creation and that's cool, that's fine. It's our privilege to dig and to seek and to do science. Science is far from infallible. But we don't need science to be wrong for the Bible to be true. And we don't need to worry. The science is not going to disprove the Bible. The story of the Bible is not about fossil records or dinosaur bones or timelines. It's not about the how and the when of creation. It's about the who. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for your revelation. And God, I confess, there's many times that I go to your word and instead of asking, what are you trying to tell me? I say, this is what I need to know. 
And God, I just, please help me not do that. Please help me look at your word on its own merits. Please let me ask the questions that you're answering. And God, I just pray that you'll give us peace in, in knowing that you've written both books. We're, we're not going to find something that doesn't matter. You've written both books. Nature is what you created it to be. And your word is what you've given to us. And both of them reveal you to us. They don't need to be in conflict. God, I just pray as we're going through this whole process, you will remind us of the value of your word. Our problem is not that we've taken it too seriously. Our problem is that we've taken it too lightly. And we haven't really dug in and really said, what are you really trying to say to us? So Lord, forgive us for that and help us moving forward to really, really pursue you and your truth. Help us to really try, to really understand what you're really trying to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Listen, if you're 50 or over, don't forget to sign up at the table today for the 50 and over group. If you're younger than 50, you are dead to me. Uh, Happy Father's Day. Have a great week.